Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. We will figure it out. If we have the confidence that we'll be able to find our path, we should be confident taking the leap. This idea that I need to be able to have a livelihood that is independent of where I live was super important for me. So the days and months leading up to the move was about reorienting my my life and livelihood around a geographic independence. Great athletes are not on the field thinking about the next game. They are in the moment, in the play. play, play, play. Okay, before we jump into this interview, I want to invite you to be considered for my 2019 Traveling Mastermind. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com and fill out the application and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a great fit. This year, we'll be in Boston doing lots of cool things like training with Tom Brady's trainer, Alex Guerrero. In the middle of the year, we'll be heading to Monaco doing things like vintage car rides through the French Riviera. And then we're going to wrap the year in Florence, Italy, doing things like truffle hunting and hot air ballooning over Florence. Look, Life is all about fulfillment, and I really try and walk the walk. So if you are looking to be part of our tribe of 28 high-achieving entrepreneurs that are in the six- and seven-figure range, fill out your application at workhardplayhardmastermind.com to be considered. So think of the mastermind as having two parts. The first is the trip itself. And the second part is what goes on over the four days within the mastermind. Our group of 28 entrepreneurs will help you brainstorm and accelerate what you want to achieve in 2019. And we'll do that through a variety of different exercises, brainstorming activities, breakout sessions, goal setting sessions, you know the drill. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a fit. All right, let's jump into today's episode. What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. This episode features Russell Benaroya. Russell Benaroya, love that name. You can find him at thebenaroyagroup.com. So who is Russell? Russell is a guy that is on a quest for geographic independence. He is one of the best I've spoken to about discovering your zone of genius and staying in that lane. In fact, in 2018, he moved with his family to Costa Rica for a year to create a new trajectory for designing his life. I asked every question that I knew to ask him about that, and we dug into the weeds on what the challenges were, because I know a lot of people listening to this podcast are considering taking extended sabbaticals. For example, my wife and I are on our way to Europe to do a four-month extended sabbatical, so I had a lot of interest in this. So he gets introduced as the guy on sabbatical, but in fact, he is the recent owner of a new outsourcing accounting business called Stride, and he's also an executive coach for entrepreneurs of high-growth corporations. So, Russell began his career in investment banking with Solomon Smith Barney and as a private equity investor at Klein Hawks and Blue Point Capital. Russell received his MBA with highest honors from UCLA Anderson Graduate School of Business. Look, he's educated. He's a really educated guy that have that could have hid behind all of those accolades, but he wanted more. He wanted to challenge himself and to step into something that was unfamiliar. He was also awarded the Puget Sound Business Journal's 40 Under 40 Award in 2009. He's an active investor in tech startups. So when he's not helping other entrepreneurs succeed, he's contemplating life on 24-hour ultra-trail marathons. I I guess you can't call them marathons. I I guess they call them ultra something or other, but I can't even imagine running for 24 hours. It's insane. So I wanted to have him on the show 
first and foremost, because my friend Darren recommended it, and I do anything he says. Um, listen to my episode with my friend Darren. It's episode number one, and you'll see why I do whatever he tells me to do. Number two, he is a four-hour work week guy that isn't just talking about it. He's actually living it and doing it. And number three, he is one of the kindest people that I've ever spoken to and one of the best listeners that I can learn a lot from. So before we get into the interview, a lot of people have been asking me about private coaching. I'm working with a select few people now that are ready to make a change in their life. Not thinking about it. Let's not jump on a call if you're like, hey, I have this idea. Call me, reach out to me by filling out an application, workhardplayhardcoaching.com when you are ready to talk about the shift that you want to make. All right, please enjoy this conversation I had with Russell Benaroya. Russell, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, Rob. You know what? I am beyond, beyond excited to have you on because any friends of the first interview on this podcast, Darren White, is a friend of mine. He was the first. He oh, was my he was my first. Yeah, we did it in South Africa together. Wow. Yeah, he's <laughs> a great, he's a great guy. It's been great to get to know him. Absolutely love that guy. So I thought what we would do is I think a good starting off point would be to ask you if you are any relation to the Jewish philanthropist and civic leader, Jack Benaroya. Oh, sure, sure. Jack was the youngest brother of my grandfather. So Jack is my great uncle. I knew that there was some blood there. Okay. <laughs> I had to dig deep for that one. Well, interesting. So since we're kind of like jumping right into religion, you know, they say you should always talk about religion and politics. So let's get right into it. You, break the seal. <laughs> break the seal. You you are Jewish of Lebanese descent, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On my on my father's side, yes. On my mother's side, her family is from Rhodes in Greece. And so we are Sephardic Jews. So there are about 2 million Sephardic Jews in the world um, that hail from the, the Mediterranean. And I grew up with a certain type of cuisine, which is pretty distinct among Sephardic Jews. And uh, both of my parents are Sephardic. Very interesting. You know, Darren and I um, will be heading to Greece uh, along with our wives. Uh, we go every year. Uh, it's one of our favorite places in the world. Uh, we'll be going to Mykonos, not not Rhodes. But we also recently just got back from Israel together as well. Oh, wow. And yeah, we both fell in love with uh, the Jewish culture. In fact, um, we did a... Uh, a DNA test, just uh, sort of separately, you know, one of those uh, 23andMe things. Mm -hmm. And uh, we learned that Darren is Jewish. I don't know if he told you that, but he's Jewish. I'm not, but he is. So <laughs> it's interesting. I, right? I knew I knew that's why Darren, I knew that we had a social connection. It's all making sense. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe he's Sephardic as well. So I'm going to have wow. to confirm that. So that's just a, a, a strange coincidence, as they say. So we both fell in love with the Jewish culture and the customs. What I want to ask you is, in what ways has Judaism or Jewish life in general helped your life? There are degrees of, of observance in any religion. There are some people that are incredibly observant and abide by the either the strict belief system or by the rules system. Judaism is a book of rules versus a book of faith, meaning in Judaism, it's not enough to just believe. It's about living the, the rules as laid out in the Torah. The Torah is a book of rules, and it's also a book of traditions. And apologies if I have a little uh, airplane noise behind me. Um, and um, I am not died in the wool observant um, in a highly, highly religious sense, but I, I am fairly consistent with the observation of the traditions 
that keep our people connected. And so holidays like Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, Hanukkah, which many of us know, um, there's a set of, of traditions, and these are the traditions that keep you linked to your origin, and they've just become embedded in the fabric of my life and in the life of my children, and there's a level of just consistency um, that keeps me connected to something that feels more important than just me. Yep, I got it. It makes perfect sense. You know, there's, uh, I grew up in New York and I was surrounded by Jews and Italians, you know? And yeah. so when I go to Italy and I, you know, I meet the, the real quote unquote Italians, they don't look like Tony Soprano, you know, they're, it's a, it's a whole different vibe. And when I go to Israel, they don't look like Woody Allen. It's a whole different vibe, you know? And I always love going to the culture because you know, I'm able to really see it for what it is. And this last trip that we took to Israel, we spent a couple of days in uh, Jerusalem and then a few days in uh, in Tel Aviv. Yeah. And, you know, on Friday night, there's a whole different vibe, man. I mean, they're, they're in, you know, like, even though that they're not, some of them aren't home practicing Shabbat, they're, they're out. But there's, there's a whole different feeling on Friday night that was so celebratory, so connected, where there was like this, this disconnection from the week and everybody together was embracing in something. It was the first time I ever really felt anything like that. And what was also weird was Sunday was Monday, which was even weirder. Right. <laughs> you, know, right. you know what I mean? Right. But, I, but I loved it. And I was just, you know, I was wondering how it affected your life, you know, sort of like looking at it through that lens. Yeah, it's it's a it's a really nice observation that you made about three years ago. My family and I took a took a two and a half week trip to Israel, and our guide was a guy by the name of Yohai, and we love Yohai. And Yohai, like many of the guides in Israel, are very knowledgeable. As you may or may not have experienced, you point to something, you're like, "What's that?" And they just know yeah. the story. And Yohai traveled with us with a Bible and it, he didn't carry the Bible with him in for like religious reasons. He carried the Bible because we would go to places and he would, there would be historical significance, but then he would open the Bible and show us in the Bible where it talks about that place. And it was kind of cool because for me, I was always interested in the historical significance, not so much like the religious circumstance, but the historical significance and being able to then connect what I was actually seeing, then with seeing how it was written in scripture made me feel, got me out of my bubble a little bit, right? Made me feel part of such a a, a much richer history that is, again, much bigger than me, but I have a responsibility to, for my kids to continue uh, the story. I love that. I, I can literally talk to you for hours about this. I'm going to have to restrain. I'm going to have to restrain myself because there's so many questions I want to ask you, but I want to get into your story a little bit. You have sure. a, like a really crazy solid education. You know, uh, you're mm-hmm. in Seattle, Bellevue High School and a little stint at Cambridge University and you know, the renowned uh, Anderson School of Management, et cetera, et cetera. And the question I have is sort of a, maybe a question you haven't been asked before, but having children, having that education and going into entrepreneurship from sort of a steady corporate job, which we're going to get into in a bit, Mm -hmm. how important do you think college is to living a happy and fulfilled life, having gone through that experience? As opposed to not attending? Yeah, so you've got two kids now, right? Two, uh-huh. two, kids, two children. Yeah. And so the question would be, is it critically important for you that those mm-hmm. ch- the, your two children go to mm-hmm. college? Or are you now of the opinion that it isn't for everybody? 
I definitely learned a lot of things, but to be a, an entrepreneur, you certainly don't need to be there. I'm just looking at what your take is. And the reason why is because you have been, you've been down yeah. both roads. You've been down the yeah. entrepreneurship road and you've been down the traditional, get a great education, work, you know, work in a, work for a great firm, but you, but you chose a different path, which we'll get into. Yeah. So I'm just wondering yeah. what your thoughts overall are on college. My, my, my reaction when you ask that question and the feeling that comes up for me is this idea of creating space in your life to think, to wonder, and to be curious. And I think college is an environment in order to do that. Great, great ideas, great relationships, great socialization, great failures um, often happen in um, the protected space of an institution of higher learning. So my reaction wasn't so much about, oh, the academics of college and what you learn in college in class, but more about the free space to try things in, in and around an institution that is purpose built for experimentation. And I think that's valuable. I got it. Because if you didn't have that container in which to do it, you'd go into some job and you would miss that chance. And maybe feel anxious about it because the perception is there's more on the line now, right? This is my job, my J-O-B, my career, I'm reporting to somebody. You know, and that comes with its own stress. Yep, for sure. You, um, I believe that where people live is really important. Their surroundings are important because it, you know, they spend a lot of time there. You, uh, you chose to live on Mercer Island in Seattle. Is there, is there something particular about living there that lends itself to leading or living the life that you want to live? The motivation to move to back to Seattle, which we can talk about uh, a bit later, but to move from where we were living in Seattle in an area called Green Lake um, to Mercer Island um, was really driven by the desire to, A, create more of a, of a neighborhood connection and, 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 and a feeling of, of connectivity to a, to a community, uh, which we didn't feel as much in Seattle. And the second was to um, have a good public school option for our children. Um, Mercer Island also has a high percentage of um, Jews living on the island. And I think that just gets more to that feeling of community and connectivity that we really, uh, that we really appreciated. Is Seattle um, in, you know, coming from New York, everybody's Jewish. But I, I, rec yeah. I recognize that the rest of the world isn't that way. Is Seattle a very Jewish city or there, are there just pockets? I think if you look at the statistics, you will find that Seattle has a very high percentage, relative percentage of Sephardic Jews, uh, which is curious. So no, it's not going to feel like it does in New York, but there are a number of thriving congregations. Why do you think Sephardic Jews wound up in Seattle? I don't know the answer to that. Isn't that interesting though? It is. That's, it is. We're going we're gonna to have to Google that. We're gonna have to well, no, it's funny, Rob. It's funny, Rob, because uh, my mother's from Montgomery, Alabama, and there was a very high percentage of Sephardics in Montgomery are like, what? Like the South? <laughs> there was a Sephardic congregation in Montgomery. And I, I think it's more about where people begin to begin to congregate and then just draw or attract others. And my family has, my family was in Seattle, has been in Seattle for four generations. And over time, it, probably created a bit of a, a magnet for, uh, for other Spartans. Yeah, right. It just, it sort of grows. I want to talk about, I want to compare investment banking versus entrepreneurship. So why did you make the decision to leave, you know, sort of the parent 
pleasing job of investment banking into the risky world of entrepreneurship? Like how did, like, what was the thought process behind that? I come from a family of entrepreneurs. You asked me at the beginning of the call about Jack Benaroya. Jack was a uh, real estate entrepreneur. My, my grandfather, Ralph Benaroya, um, who came to Seattle first and set up a business as a beer distributor um, right after Prohibition and a business that my dad and his brother took over and then ultimately sold uh, was very entrepreneurial. So I always had this, this desire to want to do something on my own and this feeling like if I didn't test myself when I had relatively few obligations like a family, I, I, would, I would regret um, not going for it. And I thought to myself, the worst thing that could happen is that I then have to go find a job, right? Is that I'm an utter failure and I have to go find a job. But if I don't do it, if I don't get on the other side of the table and truly realize what it means to go from nothing to something that I would have missed an opportunity and, and, a, and an urge and a desire to exercise this, this interest I had in being uh, an entrepreneur. Coming from a family of entrepreneurs, why did you choose the quote safer educational route versus just jumping right into entrepreneurship in the first place? Probably because the influence of my parents who wanted to see me do some of those things that maybe they didn't do made it without a, it was without question that, yes, of course, I'm going to go to college. I mean, my parents went to, to, to college, but my dad went immediately to go work with his dad in his, in the, in the beer distribution business. And I think my parents um, thought that if I anchored with a solid platform of education and work finance acumen, that it would create more opportunities for me when I, and if I decided to pull the entrepreneurial trigger. So I, I didn't really consider that I, I wouldn't go and do those things. I, I think it took me getting out into the real world to reflect on my life and say, okay, what am I, what am I really doing? And yeah, plus it was in your DNA. I mean, there was no way around yeah. this for you. Like you, you know, you can have all the degrees in the world, but that hustle was hardwired in you genetically. Hustle. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So yeah, this hustle. one, this one is going to be a little tough to encapsulate, but could you tell us why you decided to create REM Medical? And mm -hmm. then on yeah. the complete opposite side of that, what did it feel like when you sold it? So why did you want to create it? And what did it feel like after you sold it? In 2004, I was working for a private equity firm. We acquired a business in Phoenix, Arizona, that had a portion of their business selling these CPAP devices for patients with sleep apnea. That's a therapeutic device for people with sleep apnea. And I thought to myself, huh, that is the most interesting business. I'd never really thought about how uh, the health risks for people when they sleep. And, oh, it looks like there's a lot of really um, good economics in this industry. And the appeal to healthcare and helping people felt really purposeful for me. And usually it's a series of coincidences and serendipity for which the stars align to even start a business in the first place. So a buddy of mine from business school, Eric Page, got kind of excited about the idea. And then I happened to meet a physician in Seattle who was a renowned sleep medicine doc. And before you know it, there was energy to go for it and do this. 
And we were two guys, basically two guys and two cell phones and two laptops sitting at a desk and saying, okay, we're starting a sleep medicine company. And part of it is just the, the whirlwind of, of opportunity and possibility. I don't think we were overly analytical about it. We were just really hungry to try this and see where it goes. And, and we dove in. And I think diving in sometimes is necessary because if you overanalyze a situation too much, you probably wouldn't do anything, frankly, because <laughs> you can always find reasons for to sure. Not start, yeah, to, for sure. Not go. Selling the business, the circumstance of selling the business um, was a little bit, the, the, the business was a little bit distressed. We had built a profitable business, not wildly profitable. We were coming into the recession and we were starting to observe that our referral activity was going down a little bit. And there were some regulations that were changing that we thought would put at risk our facilities because a lot of the business was moving to home-based diagnostics. And so we thought that we would be better suited to be part of a bigger footprint, a bigger company uh, than trying to go it alone. So that was a long and arduous nine-month process to find a buyer and negotiate a deal. And no question that when we finally signed those papers, it was a humongous relief. I had a bunch of personal guarantees on assets of the business, as did my partner. So I think we were just ready to take a breath. We felt pretty exhausted. Did you feel excited when you got the check and it was over? Um, yes and no. A lot of the consideration for the transaction was in equity in the business that acquired us. Mm. And so it really didn't feel like... An exit. Oh, it, it didn't feel like an exit. It felt like a continuation of a journey, but one in which we were not on the hook day-to-day. And that day-to-day on the hook in a business that's, you know, moderately precarious puts a lot of stress on your family, uh, on you. And we're pretty tired. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally get that. You know, it's interesting. I actually have a little bit of um, an experience with uh, sleep medicine. It was only recently somebody had recommended one of the uh, guys created a wearable. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's called a Whoop. And uh, this guy from Harvard came up with this thing. And one of the things it measures is how much deep sleep you get. And yeah. uh, every morning I'd look down at this thing and, you know, it says I got six minutes deep sleep, seven minutes. You know, this is the slow wave stuff, the SWS. And yeah. my wife's got an hour and a half. You know, my friend Darren's got an hour and 20 minutes. And I got, so it just kept going on. And I went to, uh, Went to a sleep place and, you know, they said, we're going to put you in this bed at night and we're going to strap you in. And, you know, I was like, I never knew that there was sleep medicine. I never even heard of it. So, you know, it's really, really interesting. Um, You've said that entrepreneurship has brought you face to face with your greatest hopes and struggles. It is in the most uncertain moments when one asks themselves if they are really made to finish the game. Can you describe what finishing the game means to you? Sure. This has been getting to that point of being able to articulate that statement you reflected back to me has been a big part of the journey. And the big part of the, the journey is being able to say when there are 30 seconds left in the game and it's fourth down and you're maybe feeling a little bit behind and you're not sure if you're going to win or not win the game, great athletes are not on the field thinking about the next game. They are in the moment in the play and they're going to play. They're going to make the best play in that moment at that fourth down without thinking about what the game is next week. And the idea of saying, I am going to finish this game, whatever that means, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into the huddle. I'm going to make the call for the very best play that we can make. And when this game is over, 
win, lose, or tie, then I will think about the next game. When we think about the next game, it could be the next career opportunity, it could be the next move, whatever it is, before we finish the current game, we significantly decrease the probability that we're going to walk off the field with integrity. Mm-hmm. Makes perfect sense for me because if you don't if you don't know what the end looks like and you don't know how you're going to show up in the ends, then you just have this big mess, don't you? Always a big mess because you're compromising, you're comp- presumably compromising a standard. And I think sometimes you learn that by walking off the field before you finish the game. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. There's a, there's a sports metaphor I'm trying to think of right now where they kind of say like, leave it all in the fields. That's one of the, one of the emotions that are kind of coming up for me. You are now involved with a company called Stride where you're helping CEOs to, you know, stay in their zone of genius by eliminating, Mm -hmm. you know, their back office distractions can you describe how you're helping people with Strive and tell me what you mean by their zone of genius? I'm super energized by Strive. Like it's so in my genius zone, which we can talk about. And that is this idea that entrepreneurs do not have room to be distracted by anything other than the critical few things that matter in moving their business forward. And for most high growth companies, it is either proving product market fit that you've built a product that the market wants and will be disappointed if it goes away or entrepreneurs are very focused on scaling the business, which is selling the business and having an infrastructure to support that growth. Anything other than that, Rob, is a total distraction And the back office is definitely one of those. If you as a CEO are laboring over your bookkeeper, your HR, your back office systems, your invoicing process, cash collections, you are taking some of your most valuable time, which is valuable, like $1,000 an hour valuable, probably with opportunity cost. And you are putting it towards something that could otherwise be delegated to an expert. So I get a ton of energy when I help an entrepreneur take that distraction off of their plate and keep them focused on the two things that matter. You are either building your product or you are selling your product. Everything else, outsource. Why are they obsessing and not outsourcing? And why is it so difficult for them to hear? You know, it's it certainly makes logical sense, right? But most people don't do it. Why is that totally. the case? Totally. One is awareness and understanding that this arena of highly competent, capable outsourcing exists. And that the technology is available today for very low friction movement of data and information. So it's not like you need somebody to come into your office and haul away a box of bills and things like that. Everything can happen in the cloud. And so a bit of lack of awareness that that is an industry that is that has evolved quite a bit. So one is awareness. Number, number two is a control factor. You know, a lot of uh, entrepreneurs are capable of a lot of things. And this feeling like, you know, I'm just going to do this. I could just do this. I can, I can build this model. I can, I can, I can input payroll. It's only going to take, you know, 20, 30 minutes. So there's this bit of this control factor. Um, And sure, they could do it. Is it highest and best use? I don't think they're asking themselves, am I spending my time on highest and, and best use. And if they did, I think they'd get it off their plate as soon as possible. Yeah. You know, one of the books that we, I'm assuming we probably both read, uh, Tim Ferriss's four hour work week, you know, one of the things that he talks about in there is it's not so much, you know, the 10 minutes that you're checking email on Saturday, it's that your brain is now in that email and thinking about it all weekends. So if you don't have any constraints or, you know, some buffers that you put in, 
i.e. having somebody else do it, then you're going to be a little doing it, even if it's 20 or 30 minutes, and you're going to be thinking about it. And that is bandwidth that can be used somewhere else, yeah? 100%. And, and also, when you decide to do something on your own that could otherwise be delegated, this probably gets to a bit of four-hour work week, you are depriving somebody else um, on your team or a, a vendor partner um, from being able to do that and learn from that experience. And this is something my partner, Eric Page, and I have been talking about quite a bit lately, that um, delegation is a, is, a, is a gift to help other people in and around you rise to support your goal and vision. Don't deprive them of that by doing it yourself. All right. Speaking of doing it yourself, this is going to fall into the Meshuggah category. When mm-hmm. people think of an investment banker or a private equity or an entrepreneur, either one of these roles that you've been in, they rarely make a picture of an ultra marathoner. Can you <laughs> tell us what an ultra marathoner is and why you are one? Mm-hmm. The strict definition of ultra marathon is any event that is longer than a marathon of so 20, 26 miles. Uh, the uh, ultra marathon distances, you typically see them like 50K, which is over about 31, 32 miles, uh, 100K, uh, which is about 60 miles, 100 milers, uh, and 50 milers. Those are typically the, typically the ranges of, of, of ultras. I got, I got into ultra marathoning. Uh, probably seven years ago, and it has tracked very consistently my journey of of entrepreneurship. And we can talk about the 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 ups and downs and the highs of lows of being on a trail for thirty hours and not exactly knowing if you're going to finish and how that feels and what that means. But it's also been an opportunity for a bit of escape and solitude because when you're out there on the trails and nobody's around, it's peaceful. And I think we all find ways to find our peace, whether it's it's yoga or meditation. I found it out there. Have you read or listened to Rich Roll's podcast or book, Ultra Marathon? Um, I've, I've listened to a number of Rich Roll interviews. Okay. Do you like them? I do. Yeah. He tackled some really thoughtful, vulnerable topics. Yeah. Really, really interesting because I'm starting to realize that the few, and there's not many, but I have interviewed a few ultra marathoners and there is a theme in common with them. They're usually, you know, overachievers. They're looking for that sort of, they're just growing and they're trying to get better. And a lot of, you know, when I think of being out there for 30 miles, 40 miles, whatever it is that you're doing in the heat, I I just, it doesn't resonate with me as ever wanting to do it. But the people I know who do it all talk about the peace and the goals and they, they sound, you know, the same way. So there must be something magical that you get from it when it's all over. I mean, you've certainly been doing it for seven years, yeah? Yeah, it's 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 cool because you know there is a finish line, right? In a in a example, five years ago, my friend and I uh, ran around Mount Rainier on the Wonderland Trail, self-supported, ninety-three miles. It took us thirty-three hours. Sixteen of those hours were in a crazy rainstorm, like the one rainstorm that occurred in August of that year and we happen to find ourselves in it. You know there is a finish because you're going to complete that there is a loop. Um, but what you don't know is what's going to happen between that start line and the finish line. So there's something nice about knowing like what the game is, Rob, like you know when the game's over and <laughs> that's kind of nice, right? Uh, as opposed to like startups where you you it's really hard to know right when the game is over so you know there's a game okay you don't know what's going to happen in between and you realize that you're really not going to start the game until probably about 24 25 hours into it um, and then what happens between then and the end is a bit of 
who knows? A lot of self-reliance, a lot of mental talk, a lot of nutrition. And um, that's the that's the gift because as adults today, we rarely have the opportunity to put ourselves in a position where we may not finish. And to have that excitement of the unknown uh, as an adult, pretty energizing in hindsight. Energizing in hindsight. (laughs) Well, this goes back to your point of like dragging your tail over the finish line. So um, I love this. So, okay. So let's flip it a little bit. Uh, You made a decision to go to Costa Rica. Why did you decide to move to Costa Rica and live there with your family for a year? What was, what were the steps that sort of led up to it? And then uh, maybe talk a little bit about what it was like there and what you learned from it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm still living there, by the way. Uh, Oh, you're in Costa Rica right now? Well, I'm, I happen to be in San Francisco right now, but I'm flying back tonight and we, we, we are returning to Seattle on June 25th. So we're about a little over 10 months in. Oh, so you're 10 months into your one year in Costa Rica plan. Yeah. yeah. Ah, okay. Wow. I'm catching it such a great time. Okay. Yeah. Tell me. Yeah. yeah, yeah we're in the, we're in the moment. So my, my wife and I had for a number of years, I'm sure like many couples and families fantasized about this idea of wouldn't it be great if um, we had an abroad experience with our kids and uh, we usually would say something like that and then it would move on to another topic of like, okay, who's picking up the groceries today? What are we making for dinner? And just the humdrum of, of, of life. Um, after I sold Every Move, which was a healthcare technology business that I started after REM Medical, Uh, The prospect of starting another business again from trying to go from nothing to something with an evangelical idea of what the market could need but doesn't exist today, my wife was just not excited about that. Like Russell's not going to have a paycheck and all of these these challenges. And and I I understood. And, And I understood because about a year uh, before that, we had been driving in a car together back from Mount Bachelor. We were in Bend, Oregon, and we were listening to this Tony Robbins podcast. And I, I, he said something that I turned the radio off and I said to her, you know, it's interesting. You and I have never really talked about where do we want to be in five years? Where do we want to be in 10 years? And she said to me, Russell, it's because it's never been about us. It's always been about you and what you're doing and your entrepreneurial path and what's going on with you. Like it's, we it's never been about us. We've just kind of been along for the ride. And that just really struck me. And then in October of 2017, we decided to see together a a business coach, a life coach that I had been working with. But I said, Melissa, I'd like to go with you and let's spend a couple of days with this guy. And he posed a question to us, which was, do you want to build a fence around your relationship and create a sacred space for the two of you to be better together? Or do you want to build fences around yourselves as individuals? And if you do, that's okay too, but we should probably talk about what that means for the future of your relationship. So we decided to do the former, which is build the sacred fence around the two of us. And we spent the next month kind of trying to communicate in a different way and and connect in a different way. And we revisited this idea of the abroad experience. We came back to the business coach the next month. He said, well, how's it gone this last month? We're like, oh, it's been pretty good. You know, we've kind of been talking about this abroad thing, but we probably can't do it for a couple of years because of kids and all that. He said, well, why not? And he kept pressing and pressing. And finally, Melissa, my wife and I looked at each other and we said, yeah, why not? Let's like... Let's make it happen. Let's go for it. And then we went home that day and on the cover of National Geographic was the happiest places on earth. Costa Rica was on the cover and we said, let <laughs> No shit. For that. Yeah. Yeah, it was beautiful. Uh, you know, um, we're going we're gonna to dig into that a little bit more, but uh, now I know why Darren uh, insisted that we connect because uh, you and I are walking similar paths. Mm-hmm. My wife and I just made a decision that we've always wanted to live in Europe. Never did it. We always wanted to learn Italian. So in uh, 35 days, we are flying off to Monaco to begin uh, the journey. And we're spending four months. We have a four-year-old, so it's a little bit difficult, but yeah. we have a, uh, we're going to spend four months living in Europe. So, um, so I am really curious to hear, you know, maybe kind of like take me from 
Let's see, what's a good point? Maybe like just, you know, like talk to me about like what led up a couple of weeks before you went where you're looking at each other going like, are we really doing this? And to you actually landing in Costa Rica and living there. Well, thank you for sharing what you're planning to do. It it gives me the chills. I have so much excitement for you and and so glad you're doing it. Awesome. And you're taking, taking a leap into... The, the unknown, uh, but you know, uh, you will figure it out as, as you always do. Yep. And I, I think um, we had to come to that level of comfort that we will figure it out. We always do. I don't know how it's all going to go down, but if we have the confidence that we'll be able to find our path, we should be confident taking the leap. And when I talk to people, as you probably do too, that are say something like, oh my gosh, we could never do that. I can't believe you're doing that. We can never do that. I'm thinking to myself, no, you absolutely can. Right? The question is just what is the box that you put yourself in that gives you the feeling that you can't? And we were not going on some sabbatical. Like this is not some retirement. I am still working. I still want and need to generate revenue. And so moving to Costa Rica was a bit of a forcing function for me to redefine the way that I wanted to live my life and how I wanted to earn income and do something that I could do with geographic independence, which we can talk about in a little bit. But this idea that I need to be able to have a livelihood that is independent of where I live was super important for me. So the days and months leading up to the move was about reorienting my my life and livelihood around a geographic independence. And the steps to get there to the point of actually leaving was really like a startup, Rob. It was a project plan with... I'm in, I'm in it right now. I got a big, I got a big post-it on the wall saying, bring five pairs of underwear. I'll send you a link to a, a, a post that I wrote on my personal site, which was titled how Asana saved my marriage. Asana is a project management application. Yeah. And we I, use it. I, I talk about Asana in the context of preparing us for this move because it was like a startup. It was a, it was a series of actions and tasks that were necessary to achieve the, the goal. And for us, the goal was get down here, enroll in a language immersion program because we wanted to learn Spanish, have a landing place for a month where we lived at the school, use our time at the school to get our kids enrolled in, in proper school, find a place to live and get ourselves situated so that after that first month was finished, we could start to live day to day. All right. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be interrupting you as you're going through this because I have a million questions I don't want to forget. Um, your children are how old? 14 and 12. How much pushback did you get from them when they wanted to do this idea? When you wanted to do this idea, did were they considered as being inside of that fence or were they out of the fence? They were on the fence. <laughs> 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 uh, here's a here's a here's a a, a, a hint or a, a little uh, secret for your listeners. If you're ever gonna drop like big news to your kids that you're highly confident they will not receive well, do it in public. So <laughs> they can't like run away to their rooms and start bawling. So we went and had dinner at the Cheesecake Factory and I brought my laptop with me and I had a presentation created and I walked them through my presentation and we got to the last slide, the crescendo, the culmination, the we're going. And all of a sudden I saw my daughter's eyes just start to well up and she was so um, upset um, and scared. And then what we did is we spent the next three weeks with big white sticky pads of paper uh, on our windows uh, in our living room of our house. And we had like a pros and cons title on the sticky pads. And we would spend the next couple of weeks just writing up there like, hey, here are the pros, here are the cons. And then we'd step back and we'd look together as a family and say, hey, you know, do the pros outweigh the cons? And over that couple of weeks, they started to soften and realize, you know, 
yeah, this is going to be hard and I'm going to lose my, you know, go away from my friends and all that. But I see that there are pros here. I just don't, they just didn't, it's hard to feel it when you're that age. All right. So we fast forward and you get on the plane, you're in, uh, you're, you're in the school for a month. You got the kids in, you know, sort of proper schools. And that was, I guess, seven months ago, eight months ago, something like that. Yeah. What has, maybe kind of give it to me in, in three chunks. Like, what was it like when you first got there? Did it meet expectations, exceed expectations, et cetera? What was it like in the middle of, you know, the last seven or eight months? And what's it feel like now? So when we first got there, I, I am uh, by nature a, a connector, and I like I like building relationships with people. I'm very curious. I and so I spent a lot of time leading up to leaving, um, creating um, contact points in Costa Rica where they were actually looking forward to, to meeting me, and vice versa. And so there was this pent up. Uh, anticipation of all of these people we had connected with um, that live there or run businesses there that I was uh, eager and excited to meet. What's really cool, Rob, is that uh, I've been an 11-year member of the entrepreneur organization, EO, and the there is an EO chapter in Costa Rica with about 60 members. And so I had this kind of ready-made network um, to plug into and and meet, and that um, that gave me a lot of, of of comfort. So, what really exceeded expectations was the warmth and the embrace of welcoming our family uh, to the country. It's a small country. There are not a, a a ton of expats, and many of the expats run professional divisions of major multinationals, and so. We were meeting these young, young couples with families, and they were just excited to meet another family. So totally exceeded our expectations, like fast friends, immediate friends. The middle period, the middle period's been challenging. I, I have a, a daughter who is transgender, and that was a process that we were working through um, when we went down to Costa Rica and when she was in Costa Rica and being at a school that's pretty conservative in a country that's pretty conservative. And I will say, you know, that's been really challenging. And um, we've been lucky in some ways to have a bit of a protected space to work together as a family, um, but stressful. It's hard to see your child not find their people or have a lot of friends. And so, so I say it's been the best year of my life, but the best year of my life doesn't mean it hasn't been without challenges. And the challenges are more, particularly for your daughter, because the environment there is not quite as uh, understanding, accepting, et cetera, as it would be, let's say, if you were here. Sure. Yeah. And they, they, they don't speak the language fluently. And so that, that creates some, some barriers. So yeah, it's been really, really hard, but it's also been a gift because I mean, listen, cha- challenges exist for any 14-year-old, regardless. Of course. Um, so just having the, having the uh, opportunity to, to work through this in Costa Rica has been great. But, but you know, real stuff and, and challenging. But, I've, but, but hey, we're in Costa Rica, so I feel great about that. Um, and then what does it feel like now? We're in a great place now. I had, when we made the decision that we were going to return to Seattle, which I did not um, what to do, but realize that as a family, it was a good decision for all of us. The task has been, Rob, to take all of the things that make me feel so good about being there and so feel, make me feel so good about myself that we made that decision, we took that leap and and how I feel day to day and the sim- relative simplicity of my life and say, okay, can I bottle those feelings up? And independent of where I live, I can still live consistent with those feelings. And that's the work of these, these last 
the, the last month and these next couple of months, which is um, bottling up those feelings and making sure that I can take them with me when we go back to Seattle. Is the relationship stronger between you and your wife and is the family dynamic closer having done this? 100%. The consistency with which we have dinner together is notable. The way that we talk about our life decisions as a family is something that I didn't experience growing up. And so the inclusiveness, now they're inside the fence to answer your question. I'm like, they're definitely <laughs> okay. inside the fence. And it's, and it's really forced my, my wife and I to tackle some very real topics and work together as partners to navigate as a team. Absolutely incredible. Now, are you just as excited to return back to Seattle or do you wish that you extended it even more? Both. I wish that I extended it more, but I am I am excited because I have control over the story that I tell myself. I could tell myself a story, which is, oh, we're going back. We were only here for a year, kind of like we're going back there. Like, like it, it was a quasi failed experiment. Like, man, I wish it could be longer. Like I thought it was, you know, the beginning of like, oh, we're never going back. It's awesome. Or I could tell myself the story of we committed to a year. We gained all of this really unique insight about ourselves, about our family, about our environment. And now I am excited to go back in a in a different capacity, as a different person, as if I am not going back, but as if I am going toward a place that I have been before. And it is that mindset, which is really exciting for me because it's, it's, it's work. It's hard to get there, but I'm enjoying the process. Yeah, that's fulfillment, which kind of leads me to uh, the last part of the show, <clears throat> which is um, I want to ask you a couple of questions about these questions are going to be all in left field, um, but they're sure. all sort of like related to fulfillment in one way or no one way or another. Are there any positions or opinions in the last few years, or it could be way back, it doesn't have to be in the last few years, that you've changed your mind about substantially where you're like, huh? I used to think this way, but now, now I'm not so sure. Now I think this way. Anything come to mind there? You know, it's funny, I, instinctual answer when you ask that. So I told you I was in the sleep medicine business for many years. Yep. Um, what you experience in sleep is that there is a very high percentage of obesity in, with sleep patients. And frankly, we have a major obesity problem in our country, as you know. Yeah. Uh, general health and wellness. And while I might not have said it explicitly, I kind of always had this sort of chip that would say like, hey, you know, you're in control. You should be able to theoretically make better decisions. Put down, that, put down the cupcake. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, put down the cupcake, right? And, and the, the truth is that I, I think where I've really shifted my mindset is leading with empathy Mm. that here's, here's the thing, Rob, I have no idea what's going on in those people's lives, what's going on in their day, what's going on at home, what's going on at work, what's going on inside of them, uh, what's going on with their genetics. And so I think my decisions have been about not passing judgment and leading with empathy as, a, as one of my standards. Oh, that's such a great answer. If you could spend one month anywhere in the world other than Costa Rica... Where would it be and why? New Zealand. I have not been to New Zealand. I close my eyes and have this vision of New Zealand meeting so many of the aspects that give me, give me energy, which is largely in the outdoors and the mountains and running and this feeling of freedom. And I would love to experience it. If you can only go to one restaurant before you die, where would your last meal be? There's a, uh, there's a great taco restaurant on Capitol Hill called uh, Tacos Chuki, And uh, it's a total dive. And I'm not a foodie. 
And I just love it because it makes my kids so happy when we go there and I'm frugal and it's awesome food. I love it. I love it. Okay. The, the, uh, the rapid fire round is answer as quickly or as slowly as you'd like. It's basically a first thing that comes to mind rounds. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? Curiosity. What's one of the things you're afraid of right now? My own stories. What keeps you up at night? Security. What do people never ask you, but you wish they did? What inspires me? What book have you reread the most? 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership by a guy named Jim Detmer. Mm, Never heard of that one. Okay. What's your guilty pleasure? Game of Thrones. (laughs) Did you see last week? (laughs) Did you see last week? Uh, you know what? I, it's so scary. I haven't yet because I've been on a business trip and it's like, it's killing me. Okay. You need to be in, you like lock the doors, <laughs> get under the, get under the blanket and just tell everybody in your house, you do not disturb me for the next nine minutes. Okay. I'm stoked. What is the one thing that you probably should throw out, but never will? Probably this lime green pair of Adidas shorts I had when I was six years old that I used to dress my teddy bear that I just cannot seem to get rid of because it floods back all these these memories. Like I remember wearing them and it's like holding on to my childhood. It's the one thing. I love it. Okay, we're going to change things up for the last question. What one question would you like to ask me? What scares you? My health, my health, because I have a very, very difficult time embracing my mortality. The thought, uh, you know, I'm 52 years old and I have a four-year-old. I also have a 20-year-old. And, you know, we made the decision when my wife was 40 that we were going to have another child. And when you are, you know, in your fifties and you have a baby, you start doing the math and you start to realize that you're not going to be here forever. And Mm. so the anxiety, the fear, the thing I worry about the most is falling sick with, as an example, cancer or something like that, that would uh, not allow me to be here for my family. So but I also know that we attract these things. So, you know, I do this dance of not thinking of it, but it's but I'm really thinking of it, but I'm trying to visualize health and, you know, do all the right things. But I would say that is, that is, the, that is probably the only thing that keeps me up and uh, I have to uh, just, you know, manage my emotion around. May I ask you a quick follow-up on that? Yeah, of course. There's physical health and there's mental health. Do you do anything as a ritual in the morning or any time during the day that you have found to be powerful for your mental health? Yeah, so five out of seven mornings a week, I've got a, um, a protected hour. And in that hour, I do uh, 20 minutes of uh, meditation, which is effectively a transcendental type meditation. The last five to eight minutes of that meditation is really a visualization on, you know, what I'm working on. So, you know, for example, I'm going to Italy now, so I'm visualizing, you know, what I want that to look like. So it's probably 15 minutes meditation, five, 10 minutes-ish of visualization of, uh, you know, what I want to manifest. Um, And then I will go into something uh, called the morning pages for 20 minutes where I journal three full pages, uh, flow of consciousness, stream of consciousness, whatever's in my mind, I journal for the garbage can. I just get it out. If you looked at it, it looked like Jeffrey Dahmer wrote it. It's crazy time. (laughs) And I just get it, just get it all out. I'm fat, I'm skinny, I'm rich, I'm poor. Why am I such an idiot? Why am I so great? You know, like crazy things that come out. By the time I get to like the second page, I start gaining clarity and it's, it's like, I, um, I call it like dusting the, uh, getting the dust out of the carpet, which allows me to embrace the day with a clearer head when I, when I eject that cash uh, that's in the Ram. 
Um, and then uh, I do 20 minutes of uh, reading. And right now I'm reading a book called Mindset by Carol Dweck. So I call it like 20. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. a great one. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, 20, 20, 20. Uh, that's my morning ritual. I, I swear if I didn't do that, I would be miserable to be around. Love it. Thank you. Yeah, you got it. Well, listen, this, honestly, No BS has been one of my favorite podcasts I've ever done. Um, and I know that uh, there's no accident that we met. And I am just so grateful that, you know, I know that this is not your thing. You're not doing the podcast circuit. You're not selling the product. You're not selling the book. Um, You're doing this because you're doing it as a favor and you're sharing what you've learned. So I am super grateful uh, that you were willing to take the time. And, And, you know, I'm just really, you know, I know we just met here, but I'm so proud of the decision that you made. It takes freaking balls to do what you're doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just does. So my mm-hmm. hat's off to you and hopefully someone listening listening will be uh, inspired as well. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? I, I, I think the ask is um, to, to ch- challenge yourself um, to take the leap and know that and have the confidence that you will figure it out um, and really break out of that self-limiting sentiment that most of us spend our day in and do something unexpected. Well, Russell, that is a great note to leave on. Thank you again. Enjoy San Fran, safe trip to Costa Rica and, uh, and let your family know you're a, you're a podcast star now. Awesome, man. And if you need anything from me leading up to your trip, please reach reach out. Anything I can do for you, I will. Will do. Talk soon. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live. We'll be right back. 